Welcome to the book club where the size is just right, the books aren't too long, and you never need to host. That's our job. We bring best-selling and award-winning writers of every genre to Twin Cities metro area libraries to share their stories, discuss their work, and answer those burning questions you've always wanted to ask your favorite authors. This is a book club where we don't have to argue about what the author meant. They can tell us. The book club that doesn't require a clean house or wine and cheese. And in this book club, if you haven't read the book, it's all right. Although, we hope you'll be inspired to pick it up next time you're in the library. I'm your host, Slade Kemet, and you can consider the book club rewritten, because this is Club Book. This season consists of both in-person library events as well as virtual facilitated author discussions by some really great guest hosts. That will include a Q&A section with questions submitted by our virtual audience. So with that, I will turn it over to our host for this evening's event. Enjoy. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Club Book with Fiona Davis. My name is Amy Lynn Green, and I'm a local author from here in Minnesota of historical fiction, but more importantly, I'm also a reader. And so today I'm going to be moderating this conversation um, between all of you and Fiona, including some questions that people have submitted ahead of time and ones that you'll have a chance to submit later. Um, but before I introduce our guest tonight properly, I'm going to take a moment to thank some of the people who are bringing this program to us. Club Book is a program of MELSA, the Metropolitan Library Services Agency, made possible through Minnesota's Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. It's coordinated by Library Strategies, part of the Friends of the St. Paul Public Library, and Dakota County Library, my home library, is the co-organizer of this evening's talk. Thanks also to partnering bookseller Red Balloon Bookshop. Uh, and now for our featured event, Fiona Davis is a historical fiction mainstay, beloved by readers for her winning formula of showcasing the stories behind New York City landmarks. Her seven best-selling novels to date include Good Morning America book club pick The Lions of Fifth Avenue, which Publishers Weekly called a delightful mystery delving into the history of New York Public Library. The Magnolia Palace spotlights Gilded Age mansions and the secrets held within their walls. The masterpiece breathes, breathes new life into a defunct and now all but forgotten art school once housed improbably within Grand Central Terminal. And the book we're going to be talking about tonight, um, The Spectacular, Davis turns her attention to the equally iconic Radio City Music Hall. 19-year-old Marion Brooks seeks a coveted position with world-famous precision dance troupe The Rockettes, unaware that her ambitions will pull her in the middle of a citywide dragnet to capture an elusive terrorist. The Spectacular hit shelves in June. Um, so Fiona is going to share a little bit with us, and then I'm going to start a conversation using some of the questions that all of you already submitted to Club Book um, and a few of my own. And then afterwards, we will take as many questions as we can that you put in the comments during the event. So if you think of something, drop a comment in the Facebook event, or if you'd prefer, you can send a private message to Club Book through Facebook Messenger or email, um, which that email address is clubbookmn at gmail.com. And so without further ado, I'll turn it over to Fiona now. Thank you so much, Amy. And thank you, everybody, for joining in tonight. It's a thrill to be here. I'm honored to be part of this. And um, yeah, I, I thought what I'd do is tell you a little bit about myself and about the research and the inspiration behind the spectacular. And then I love the, the back and forth of the conversation. So we'll get right over to that. Um, so as Amy mentioned, all of my books are set in iconic New York City buildings. And each one comes about a different way. But I, I, the question I often get asked is why? why? Why do you set your books in buildings? And the answer is when I was a kid, we would go back to England to visit our relatives. My parents are the only um, part of our, our family that are here. All the rest of the relatives were in England. And so we go back every three years to go and visit them. And we travel all over England and Scotland. And I was just a kid, you know, five or six with my brother who was a year older. And we'd start fighting in the back seat of the rental car. And to kind of calm us down, my parents would stop whenever we hit an estate or a castle or a ruin so that we could run around and use up some of that energy. And I just couldn't believe how old everything was. You know, in England, anything that's less than 400 years is considered recent. And it really just blew my mind. And so it's really no surprise that when I started 
writing historical fiction, I started looking around New York City, where I've lived for about 35 years, and focused in on the buildings and their history and the stories behind them. And so that's really how that came about. And I'm just going to share my screen here so we can get some fun photos of, of some of the things that I was doing. Here we go. Um, so the uh, like I said, all my books have come about in different ways. And the spectacular came about um, after I was finishing up Magnolia Palace. I wasn't sure where to set a book. And I got an email through my author website. And it was from a woman who was in her 80s. Her name was Sandy. She lived in, in North Carolina. And she said, look, I'm, I'm in my mid 80s. I'm a former Rockette. And if you want to know all the secrets about Radio City Music Hall, you should call me. Well, I couldn't resist. So I called Sandy. We had this amazing conversation. She told me so many of her amazing memories about being a dancer there that I thought, okay, this, this really might work. Here's a shot of her. She was there from 59 to 63. She was 19 when she started. She met her husband, Bob, there. He was 19 as well, and he ran the lighting board. And she had all of this archival um, papers, like schedules and photos and programs, so I was able to really get a great sense of what it was like to dance back then. Um, it was really terrific. She was such, such a huge resource for me. And so then I thought, okay, my next step is to do the research. And so I learned all I could about the Rockettes. And it turns out they started in 1925 in St. Louis, actually. They were known as the, the St. Louis Rockets, the Missouri Rockets. And this guy named Russell Markert founded them in 1925. Now, originally, they had to be between 5'2 and 5'5 five, five and a half. That was the height requirement. Keep in mind, today, it's 5'5 five, five to 5'10 five, and a half. So you can see how things have really changed. And they, they did very well. They, they came to New York and, and really took the city by storm. And this man named Samuel Rothfeld, known as Roxy, caught, he caught eye of them and, and thought, what a fantastic troupe. And so he took them under his wing. Um, he was kind of a guy who had all these film um, movie palaces all over America and was this impresario for film. And he took them under his wing and he renamed them the Roxyettes. And there they are. And they, they were part of Radio City's opening night. Roxy was a big part of founding Radio City Music Hall and designing it. And so opening night was in 1932. And it went on way too long. They had so many acts. They had the Flying Walendas. They had Martha Graham. They had the Roxyettes. And it finally ended in, at 2.30 in the morning. And poor Roxy had to be hospitalized for stress because it was just so crazy. However, the show went on. It opened. And then, of course, um, Radio City opened up. And it's a beautiful Art Deco building. Um, it's really, really stunning. And what's interesting about it is back then, it wasn't what it is today, which is mainly it's a concert hall. And then in the winter, the Rockettes are, work part-time. They work from about November to January, just doing the Christmas show. But back then, it was a movie palace. And there were over 700 movie premieres at Radio City Music Hall, including White Christmas, King Kong, Mary Poppins, all of these iconic movies. And so the Roxyettes were renamed the Rockettes, and they took part in the stage show that happened in between the movies. So say you bought a ticket to the movie, you would get a ticket to the stage show as well. That featured the Rockettes. It featured the Radio City Choral Ensemble. There was the Radio City Ballet Corps. So it was this huge thing going on, um, a, a really huge performance. And there were um, 46 girls hired at that time and 36 danced at any one time. And the pay in the late 50s started at about $70 a week and they became very, very popular. Now, back then the schedule was crazy. Um, they, they would dance, they would do four shows a day and they would do that for three or four weeks straight before they got a week off. So it was exhausting. You had to be the top of your technique. You had to be strong. You had to have excellent form. You had to have such discipline in order to dance on that stage. And the schedule was crazy. Say there was a movie premiere, they would change their dance depending on whatever movie was playing. So say it was a John Wayne movie, they'd have a thing with cowboy hats and, and you know fake guns and holsters. And they had to learn that routine. So they'd learn that in between the four shows a day that they did. And then 
they would open by showing up at, they had a 5 a.m. call. They did their 7 a.m. dress rehearsal. The movie premiered and they were off to the races with a whole new routine. So it was really, really tough. Um, there was a kick line in every number and that meant they did about 600 kicks per day, if you can imagine. <laughs> now the theater itself is stunning. Um, it, it's beautiful. And in fact, uh, Roxy, he, he created the design of this theater after he saw a sunset on a transatlantic cruise that he took. And he imagined a theater that looked like a sunset and went ahead and created one, which is really was it, what it does. It has over 6,000 seats. It's really, really a beautiful theater if you've come to New York and checked it out. The interior is beautiful as well. It's this art deco design by a man named Donald Desky. And he really put so much thought into the elevators, into the lobby, even the bathrooms are just stunning and, and worth a visit if you go see them. Now in the book, I had to kind of explain how this theater is different from the other Broadway theaters, which are more, they were built in the, more in the early 1900s and they're a little more, um, more chandeliers and, and a, lot of, a lot of crazy details. And so I wrote in the book that the Broadway theaters are like hoop skirted maidens from the last century, overly ornamented and full of froth with flamboyant chandeliers and Rococo plasterwork. In contrast, Radio City resembled a jazz age siren wearing a silk slip, sleek and elegant, which really, really is what it was. Now, what was cool about it is that you had so many people working there at that time that all around the theater on three sides, there are seven floors of offices, dressing rooms, rehearsal halls. They had a costume room. They had a poster department. They had a nurse on staff. They had a 26 bed dormitory. So when the dancers had to stay over at night, if they worked late, they could have somewhere to sleep. And then on the roof, they had shuffle ball courts and wiffle ball. And so the dancers would go up there in between shows just to hang out much to the delight of all the workers in the skyscrapers around them, as you can imagine. And so as I was doing this, um, I also got a wonderful backstage tour of Radio City, and it included this room called the Roxy Apartment. Now, it's not an apartment. It's actually uh, kind of a living area and a dining area. And Roxy had it put in there so he could entertain celebrities like Walt Disney and Judy Garland. And anyone who's been through Radio City has signed the guest book. You can see it in the glass on kind of the, the left side of the frame. And that has so many famous signatures on it of everybody who came through. And it's a beautiful space with 20 foot high ceilings and gold, gold leafed um, ceiling and beautiful, beautiful cherry paneled walls. It's really quite a space. And so part of my research is that I interviewed Rockettes who danced there in the 40s and the 50s and 60s. And this was crucial because I am not a dancer. Um, and so I really had to learn so much about what it's like to, to do that and to have the, the technique to do that day after day after day. And they all talked to me about what a sisterhood it was, just how wonderful it was to have this group of women around them at a time when women were supposed to be nurses or teachers or wives. There they were in the middle of New York City, making their own money, fully independent, and um, I talked to one and I asked, what's your favorite memory? And she said, it's walking down the middle of Fifth Avenue in the middle of the night, arm in arm with my fellow Rockettes and singing at the top of our lungs. And I just love that. I just love that memory. Um, another one mentioned that, um, and these are the tidbits that you put into the book, right? Because when you're writing historical fiction, you don't want to describe a room for three pages because no one wants to, to hear that. Um, and so you put in these small things that really make it feel like you're backstage with the dancers. One talked about how, you know, those toy soldiers um, costumes that they wear with the white pants. She said in the 40s, they were so starched that you had to stand in a chair and slide into them. And another talked about how at the end of the evening, one of the conductors would speed up so that he could make his train home. And so they just have to dance faster and faster and faster which um, again, just a wonderful detail. They weren't allowed to get sunburns or tans. Uh, they had to keep the same hair. Uh, they had to you know, stay a certain weight. There were a lot of rules. And in my research, I found this really interesting thing from the New York Times from 67, and it's called Miss Average Rockette. And it's the topography 
of Miss Average Rockette, including measurements for bust, waist, hips, head, neck, shoe size, and what the average Rockette was like. And it's a little creepy, um, but it really shows just the, the kind of obsession with the dancers that, that people have had throughout the ages. Now, I, one of the fun things I learned is that so much of what they do is an illusion. So for example, in the kick line, they line them all up and it looks like it's all the same person and, and you know, just the same person. And in fact, what they do is they put the taller girls in the middle and the shorter ones at the end. And then they make all the hemlines be an even line. And so that gives the illusion that they're all the same height. And the same with that kick line, you can see here, they're doing the kick line and it looks like they're all holding on to each other. But in fact, they're not. There's four or five inches of space in between the hand of the girl and the back of the girl next to her. And that's so if one falls, it doesn't bring down the whole line. But you can imagine that the strength and the core strength required to keep up that illusion. And that was just fascinating to learn as well. And so one of the fun things I learned was that when, when the girls stayed there, a lot of them often stayed at something called the rehearsal club. And it was right around the corner on 53rd street. And it was a boarding house specifically for women who are working or trying to work in the performing arts. And if you ever saw the movie stage door with um, Ginger Rogers and Catherine Hepburn, that's based on what would have been the rehearsal club. And it, had, it started in the twenties. It'd been around a while and it was kind of, uh, it wasn't huge. It wasn't like the Barbizon hotel. It was a smaller building. But there were the same kind of rules. So no boys, no smoking, no alcohol. The doors, the doors were locked at midnight. You had to be between 18 and 25 and neither married nor divorced. And you had to be pursuing a career on the stage. So that's either um, you know, finding an agent, taking classes, performing in a Broadway show. And some of the famous people who lived there include Carol Burnett and Sandy Duncan, Blythe Danner, Diane Keaton. You can just imagine what it would have been like to be Carol Burnett's roommate. I mean, how amazing. And in the late 50s, that cost about $18 a week for room and board. Not bad. Now, in my book, I have a main character uh, named Marion. And Marion's 19, and she lives just north of the city in Bronxville. And she goes against her father's wishes to dance as a rock cat. And she was very inspired by this um, actress and dancer named Vera Ellen. And Vera Ellen, when she was very young, was a Rockette. And she just had a tough time. She couldn't fit in, right? It, so if Russell Markert, the director and choreographer, if he wanted a kick that was shoulder high, hers would be head high. You know, her arms would be more extended than anyone else's. She just couldn't fit in. And Russell Markert gave her a couple of weeks to get it together, but she quit before she got fired and went on to a great career, including White Christmas, which she's um, probably best known for. But it just really kind of captured my interest of this woman who can't fit into, you know, something that requires such precision and technique. She's just too creative. She's just bursting with life. And that kind of goes to the theme of the book, which is, you know, what is the cost of suppressing your own individuality or your own creativity for the good of the greater whole? And that's whether you're in a corporation or a precision dance troupe um, or in a community. Uh, you know, what do you do? When, when do you kind of toe the line and, and fit in and work together? And when do you stand up and make your voice heard? And so that's kind of where the book started going as I started assembling my characters and figuring out what this book might be about. Now, one of the things I love to do is find a hook. And that's something that's happened in New York City during that time period that doesn't have to do with the building or the people in the building itself, um, that kind of roots the the reader in the, the time and the era. And so this was set in the 50s. So I started doing research and I learned that in 1956, near the end of it, the police were ramping up their hunt for someone called the Mad Bomber. I had never heard of this. Now, this is a guy who set 33 bombs off over 16 years. He injured 15 people, some seriously. And his whole thing was that he would set them in iconic New York City buildings, like Grand Central, like uh, the New York Public Library, Penn Station. And it turns out, as I did my research, he set two at Radio City Music Hall. And that's where I thought, wow, maybe this story is more than, you know, a dancer kind of finding her, her, her own self and finding her where she belongs in the world. 
maybe there's something else going on here because I was so intrigued by this. And then I learned that the case was cracked by a man named James Brussel, who was a psychiatrist, and he used criminal profiling to crack the case the first time it had ever been used. And what he did was the police came to him and said, we have no idea who this guy is. And they brought all of the letters and the, the communications that the bomber had sent over the years. And James Brussel studied them and he looked at it and he, he went to the police and he said, okay, here's your guy. He'll be um, 40 to 50 years old, very well dressed, uh, not married, living with his older female relative, very methodical, not a smoker. He said he will um, be from Eastern Europe. He'll be Roman Catholic. And finally, he said, when you catch him, he'll be wearing a double-breasted suit and it will be buttoned. Now, I won't give anything away here, no spoilers, but needless to say, the art of criminal profiling was born by this case and by this man. And I just thought that was fascinating. So I renamed my bomber in the book, the Big Apple Bomber, because I needed to change some, some factual items just to make it work with the plot. And so in the book, my character, Marion, has to team up with this very brilliant but introverted psychiatrist named Peter to help solve this case for very personal reasons. She has to catch the Big Apple Bomber. And so they team up to try and figure it out. And it's a little bit of romance, a little bit of mystery, a little thriller, but it really offers a backstage look at the glamor and the glitz at Radio City at that time in the 1950s. And it was so much fun to write. And, uh, and I'm going to stop my share right here and come on back. And yeah, and now I'm happy to, you know, answer any questions about this book or any of the other books or just about writing in general. Yeah, and that's kind of how we're going to structure these questions. I'm going to try to ask you some questions first that are more about the spectacular and then about your writing in general. Uh, but if we get some in later that don't fit into those categories, that's fine, too. Um, that was a great like lots of great details about both aspects of the story. I loved seeing those research photos and hearing about your process. Oh, it's so much fun. That's the, that's half the fun of writing a book is that research. It's it's really a joy. And thanks for inviting us into a little bit of your New York world for the Minnesotans who are on here. And we will have to pay a visit when we go next time to the Big Apple. Um, so first question was kind of about um, the process of writing a book that takes place um, in two different timelines. Um, how did you write that? So how do you usually go about it? Do you write one first and then the more current one later? Do you alternate scenes um, or some other combination? Yeah, it's a great question. You know, most of my books have dual timelines. This one is mainly set in 1956, but there are about four or five chapters that are set in the 90s from the point of view of a rockette looking back on her life. And so I knew that I knew I wanted to have just a touchstone of, of you know, this rockette looking back, but I didn't want it to have its whole other plot because um, I knew I had to focus on the thriller. So with this one, it was a little different. I, I let me see, I'm pretty sure I wrote the whole thing of the 1956 timeline first and then layered in the other ones. Um, what I normally do is I do the older timeline first and then the newer one and then very carefully braid them together. And in some books, that's pretty complicated. This book, it wasn't as complicated because I knew what the, you know, I, you're withholding a lot in that 1990s timeline and you, you have a lot of mystery that you don't want to give out. And that's the tricky part is to, prevent kind of present this character who's a three-dimensional character without giving the whole thing away <laughs> mm -hmm. yep I can see how that would be a challenge um and just so readers who are listening know we're going to try not to give away anything from the ending um I will try to be careful in my questions and Fiona was great in all of her answers and research because we know that especially for thrillers giving away the ending is just a cardinal sin so um there have been a lot of questions about your research, so I'm going to talk. Uh, have a few of these are kind of similar, so I'll try to combine the ones that I can. But um, there was somebody who submitted earlier and said I'd lived in uh, New York for a long time and had never heard of the Mad Bomber. Um, and uh, you, you talked a little bit about how you discovered it, but somebody else asked, how did you come across the specific bombings? Um, and the criminal profiling that you ended up weaving into the plot. Um, what was your research process like for that? 
Yeah, yeah. You know, I was just so shocked when I heard about it. And as I've been doing these talks all over the country and especially around the New York area, I, you know, most people, even New Yorkers who've lived here for a really long time, say they had no idea. Only one person in a book talk said, yes, I lived in Queens at that time. And when we went to a movie theater, we would check the seat to make sure there wasn't a cut in it because that's where he would slide the pipe bomb. No way. See, yeah. And she remembered checking it hmm. when she sat down, which is just terrifying. Um, yeah. But what I did is I stumbled upon a really wonderful nonfiction book called Incendiary by a, a man named Michael Cannell, C-A-N-N-E-L-L. If you want a great account with all the details of how brilliant he was, it's a wonderful book. And that to me was kind of a lifeline because I could draw on that to kind of create a story that felt believable. Oh, I love that. That's great. Good recommendation for all the history nerds out there, of which I know there are many attending this talk. Um, so then when you, you you included, you mentioned Peter is modeled after a historical character and others like Russell actually appear in the story. Did you feel any extra pressure in writing those scenes since they were people who actually existed? Yeah, you know, Peter, I you know, I renamed the psychiatrist and made him much younger um, just because it worked better for the plot. And but for yeah, for Russell Markert and, and even his assistant, Emily, you know, they are revered. And, and one of the reasons I think so many of these Rockettes I spoke to said they had such a wonderful experience was that Russell Markert was a real father figure who really took care of them. If they had an issue, he was there to help solve it. He made it a really safe, wonderful working environment, which was rare for back then. And so I definitely wanted to do him justice. And what was wonderful is um Recently, I was doing a, a, someone reached out to me and Emily was his assistant and she was, you know, very important as well. And her children reached out to me and said that they, they, you know, saw their, that, that I was writing about their mom and that it was great because I included that she wore a charm bracelet. And so you could always hear her coming and that she was kind of the tough guy, you know, she was the tough one when Russell was sweet. And so that was a real wonderful thing to hear. And, and they shared with me some some photos and images of her and memories. So, you know, that kind of thing is such a relief that, okay, got that right at least. Ah, that's that's such a fun story. And just a reminder of that this is historical fiction, but wasn't that long ago that you can still have conversations with family members of people in your book. Um, I when I, I remember meeting Russell and thinking, because of what was typical of the time period, am I going to like this guy? And I just adored him. So you did a great job. And I think it was especially great as a contrast to Marion's own father, who is deeply unsupportive. Um, so question about him. Yeah. Um, her father, her boyfriend, her sister, um, not the most supportive of her dancing career and goals and uh, just the number of times that they referred to it as a hobby or something she was going to get over, kind of a phase or treated her like a child. Um, very typical of the time period, obviously. Um, was it hard to write those scenes from a modern perspective? Yeah, it was because, you know, it's this woman kind of getting beat down in a way and, and dismissed for, you know, her, her goals and her dreams. But so many Rockettes I spoke to said, yeah, my father did not approve. Absolutely. You know, I, I, I only got to do it because Russell talked to him and convinced him it would be okay. And even then, you know, one, her father pulled her out after a year um, because, it, you know, which is just so crazy when you look back now and, you know, if someone says they're a Rockette, you're just in awe right? It's, it's just such a, an amazing accomplishment. Um, but back then it, it was dismissed. And, and so, yeah, it was tough to write that. And what I do in writing historical fiction is I'm always looking for how things have changed over time for women and how they haven't, and really stressing those points. So we can see how far we've come and also how far we have to go. Yeah, that's really great. I wanted to give Marion a hug a lot of the time, which <laughs> is great because you made her so believable and sympathetic. Um, along with that, somebody asked, um, who do you feel like was the hardest character to write for you? So I'm curious to know. Yeah, you know, I think it would have to be older Marion, to be honest, because she has a lot going on with her. And that was a tricky balance of making her relate to her as a young woman, but someone who's lived through a lot and dealing with a lot in that moment. And so for very personal reasons, that was very important for me. And again, we won't give anything away. Um, but yeah, yeah, that was a, that was a, that was a tough one. I mean, the other, the other characters like the bomber and, you know, Peter and, and even the father, they're fun because they're, 
they believe very strongly what they believe, mm. you know? And, and so you have to get in their head and, and imagine, you know, her father just wants to protect her. He's seen some terrible things happen and he doesn't want anything bad to happen to his daughter. It's all about protecting her. Yeah, that's great. Like a character doesn't have to be somebody who you would want to be best friends with to be fun to write or fun to read. That's for sure. Um, lots of great conflict there. Um, so when you did research into the early days of psychology and criminology for Peter's character, um, I just, this is more like a fun question. As an author, do you feel like if you weren't writing, could you do that job or do you feel like you couldn't? And tell us why. Oh my goodness. As a as pro criminal profiling. Yeah. Yeah. I think we all want to do it because we see it on TV. You know, I think it would be fascinating. Um, you know, and, and that's what I love watching those shows is the way they, they, you know, figure out who it is. I don't think it would be, I, I don't think I'd be very good at it because I'd be imagining too much. You know, <laughs> I, I bring my fiction writer brain to it. And so I'd probably be going off on tangents that had nothing to do with you know, what was actually presented. I don't think I have a scientific mind that could, that could do it. <laughs> yeah, I can understand that. Um, um, sorry, I'm reading the comments from our moderators, sending your questions. Um, do you have a character, and now this is kind of broader from any of your books, who you feel like you relate to um, most or that you have based on someone in your life? So kind of a two-part question. Is there one that you feel like is most like you or similar to you in some way? And do you have any that you have based on real life people? And this person said you do a great job of creating realistic characters. So well, thank you so much. No, you know, I don't tend to base them on real life people. They might be kind of inspired by someone, but then they really become their own person as, as I go along. So for example, like Marion, you know, what I do actually is I find, cause I'm grew up in the eighties. So what I do is I find someone in the eighties who was like a movie star who I think represents who she would look like, mm. what she would look like. And so character Marion is actually based on Elizabeth Shue, <laughs> the actress, because I feel like she's so, you know, warm and, and bubbly and full of, full of life um, and utterly gorgeous. And so to me, that was what she looked like. And so then that character really takes off on a life of her own. Um, the character that's most like me, um, probably maybe, um, I guess probably the very first book I wrote, The Dollhouse, um, the character Rose, who's the journalist, who's being nosy and trying to figure out what happened to her missing neighbor at the Barbizon condo. Um, probably she's a little, you know, that might be kind of more of me just because she's a journalist who's nosy. What do you mean fiction writers are nosy and people watch and eavesdrop everywhere we go? <laughs> Who us, right? Yeah. I know, I know, you know. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yep, that's, there's your, there's your confession of the night, everyone. So watch out. Don't say anything you don't want in a book if you're around an author. Um, you know what's worse is that my boyfriend is an author too. So if we're out doing something and someone says something, we'll both look at each other and be like, okay, who gets that? Who gets that nugget? Ah. <laughs> uh. What a great story. I love that. <laughs> and also, I love that both of you are eavesdropping and it's not one of you and the other person says, oh, no, I was paying attention to what was in front of me. <laughs> Very good. Um, this person said, this book made me put a Rockette show on my bucket list. Um, you talked about your research with people who had been in the Rockettes um, in the time period of your novel. Have you heard from any modern Rockette dancers? Um, or do you enjoy going to current shows? Um, that sort of thing. I love going to Radio City. It's a great venue. It's really con a concert venue now. And I was just there seeing something about a month ago and it's just so comfortable and oh, it's gorgeous. And um, yeah, there's a couple um, actually women who teach people who want to be Rockettes, dancers who want to be Rockettes. And so um, they've been wonderful and, and supportive and helpful. Um, and yeah, you know, the current Rockettes are too busy Rocketting right now because um, it's it's pretty tough. But yeah, it, it's been really wonderful hearing from Rockettes, both present and past. Um, and also some of them have connected with each other through either social media. If they go on my, um, on my, I put a lot of the research up on social media, on Facebook and Instagram. And so every so often I see people going, Oh, are you, you know, Sandy who danced there and whatever, and watching them connect with each other through, through the book, which is great. 
Well, that's delightful. Good job, social media. Um, so uh, this question kind of goes along with that, which I have a feeling I know part of the answer, but it says, how much of your research is are you able to do on site at historical locations like Radio City Music Hall or um, the Frick Mansion or other ones that have taken place or have been the setting of your books? Yeah, you know, in the best one was the New York Public Library because they have a room called the Allen Room where you can do research if you have a book contract, you have to apply to get into it, but then you get a desk and you get a bookshelf where any book you want gets delivered right to you. And so that was amazing. Working on a book about the library in the library was incredible. And all the librarians were incredibly helpful. Um, and so that was that was terrific. But then COVID hit. And so, for example, the book that's set at the Frick Collection, the Magnolia Palace, that was, we were under lockdown. I think I started that book. I took the tour of the place in January of 2020. And then of course we locked down, but luckily they had an online archive and a floor plan online and an interactive you know, floor plan. So I could get into any room virtually, which was great. And Radio City was pretty much locked down as I was working on it as well. It was going in and out of lockdown as um, you know, the virus was surging and then, and then retreating. Um, so I did get in there, but I didn't get as much time as I wish I, I could have gotten. But luckily, Bob, Sandy's husband, who gave me the idea, he knew it. He knew the backstage, especially the backstage in the 50s, like the back of his hand. So he sent me this huge floor plan that I had in front of me as I worked to figure out, OK, if you're on the fifth floor and you needed to get to the stage, how would you do it? I had that from the 50s. Well, that's delightful. Yeah, I didn't even think when you said that she married a sound guy, how helpful that would be if you were able to talk to him as well. Those behind the scenes people always Save getting day. what you need. Yep. Um, there was a second part to this question, um, which is now that you've published several books and you're more established, do you feel like that's opened doors that you wouldn't have had for your debut novel? Do you feel like you've been able to get access to places or assistance that you wouldn't have before? Absolutely. Um, yeah, each book, it's gotten a little bit easier. Uh, you know, it, it's um, it's so funny because the very first book was set at the, the Barbizon Hotel for Women, and that's a private residence, so you can't really get in there. And then for some reason, I picked the Dakota as the next book, which of course you cannot get even close to um, for good reason. And with that one, the way I got in at first was... Um, <laughs> Because, you know, I, I couldn't call them and say, hey, you know, I write books. Can I get a tour? They wouldn't do that. And so a friend of mine who's a real estate agent mentioned that Lauren Bacall's apartment was on the market for $23 million. And huh. we go. And it was an estate sale. She'd been, she died a few years ago. But, you know, we dressed up and got this amazing tour of Lauren Bacall's apartment. And it was on the fourth floor. It overlooked the park with these huge windows and all the original mantles and, and, you know, the, the paneling on the walls and the molding on the ceiling, absolutely beautiful. And, you know, you were, we were walking around the halls and I was trying to memorize every little detail. Um, and later I did get in and got to know some people who, and got a full tour from the basement up to the very top floor where the maids used to live and where the ghosts are. Um, so it was that help, but each book has gotten easier and easier. Um, as people can see, okay, this is, you know, if they've either read the books or they know of them and, and people have been really, really welcoming the, the relationship with the Frick, for example, has been so incredible and, and just such a joy. And the same with the New York public library that they I'm over there once a month to go and sign more books because they sell them so crazy at the, at their bookshop. And it's just such a, a great place. So yeah, it's really fun. Very fun. Yeah, book people and history people tend to be very generous with their time because they love the things that you're doing. So I think that's that's a really yeah. fun aspect. Um, one person said, my book club loves the touchstones of your writing, um, the Big Apple landmark, the untold history, the split time narrative. And this particular person was wondering why with the dollhouse, you kind of started doing those things in your debut novel. Um, and another person asked a similar question about why why, why did you choose historical fiction and why did you choose split timeline specifically within historical fiction? So, yeah, that's a great question. You know, I, I have been a journalist for a long time and I got the idea from getting a, looking at an apartment 
in the Barbizon condo and learning how it was the Barbizon Hotel for Women, which I'd known, but I didn't really know. And, you know, that Joan Didion and all these famous people uh, lived there, you know, Grace Kelly, just the list is incredible. And that there were a dozen of the old time residents still living there when it went condo. And they were moved into the fourth floor into these, you know, kitchenettes, studio apartments where they paid $200 a month. And meanwhile, they were selling the penthouse for 17 million. And I just thought, what a great story of how the building and the residents in the city has changed over time. But the women of the fourth floor were very private and they wouldn't be um, interviewed at that time. And I just couldn't shake it. And I started thinking, well, maybe this would be a good book. And I love dual timelines. I just read a book called The Perfume Collector by Kathleen Tesaro. And that was just in my head. And I thought this would be perfect for that because you could show present day and past and interweave them, which would be very important. But if I'd known how hard it is to write dual timeline, I would have never done it. Like, I cannot believe I set myself up for that because to do that plus have a mystery and keep the mystery going without giving it away in either timeline um, is really tricky. And so... So it was, I just kind of stumbled into it because that was the book I wanted to read. I wanted to read a dual timeline historical fiction about the Barbizon Hotel for Women. And since there wasn't a book, I would try and write it. (laughs) And so that's really how it came about. And then, you know, I I got a publisher and, and my agent. And from there, each book just lent itself, usually not all of them, but most of them do have that dual timeline because again, it shows how the Dakota was in the 1880s when it was first built and the 1980s which was a gilded age of its own. And that's just so much fun. I just enjoy it. That's great. I love that. And I love the, you wrote this because it was the book you wanted to read. And I think that's, and for any aspiring authors who are out there who are listening to this, I think that's great, a great thing to keep in mind. Um, So more generally, somebody wanted to know, what does your writing schedule look like? Do you have a certain number of words you want to write in a day? Do you have a place that you write? Um, And the second part of that overlaps with a different question. So I'll combine those later. Okay. We'll start with just that. Okay. This is great. I love the questions. Um, yes. Yeah, so I, um, I do tend to write in the morning, especially if I'm working on the first draft. I don't know about you, but I find the first draft so painful, you know, pulling that story out of nothing is so hard, even if I have an outline to work with. And so I do that in the morning when my brain is still kind of bubbling along. And then I, I do about, um, 10 drafts of it. And so I do about five or six and it goes to my agent and then another couple, and then it goes to my editor and then more after that. And with each one, I'm kind of layering on more, more character, more intrigue, whatever it, whatever it needs. And I guess having been a journalist, I understand the importance of editors because you can't see the forest for the trees when you're in a book. There's so much you're balancing and juggling in the story and the characters that you really need a good editor to come in and say, okay, this is going off, off, you know, off the road here. You got to pull this back and add more here. Um, and so I love editing and I, I, I really prefer editing to that first draft. You know, once I have those words on a page, I will shape them for days and I can do that all day long. Um, and then, yeah, and then it's ready to go. The whole thing these days takes about a year and a half. And I always mention that I don't have kids. And so that makes it a little quicker. Um, But it's about a year and a half in between books these days. So when you say a year and a half, that means from the time you start the research to the time readers have the book or to the time you're done with it? Till the time, let's see, till the readers have the book. Okay, great. Because that was another question that somebody sent in. So you're just covering these ahead of time. Um, The second part of the question, which somebody also submitted ahead of time was, do you ever have two, are are you ever working on two books at once in any stage? Do they overlap at all? Not really. I'm such a bad multitasker. I I just can't do it. I'll start calling the characters the wrong name if I did that. Um, (laughs) But there is a point when you're, you're starting to research the next book and you're getting those final pages and proofs of the old book. Mm. And so that's where you do have to kind of stop, turn your focus and really get back into that other book. And you're just making sure all the corrections are made and that everything is lined up and makes sense. But those are kind of quick jumps back to the old book and then back to the new research. So it's not too bad. Great answer. Um, 
Do you, somebody asked, have you ever thought about writing a nonfiction book on the making or research of your fiction novels? Um, would that be something that you would ever consider doing? Wow. You know, no one has ever asked me that. That's so interesting. Um, yeah, you know, I think there's there's a, a logic to it. My parents were both engineers. So there is, even though I say I'm not scientific, there is a part of me that's very methodical about writing a book. You know, I don't overwrite. I don't write, you know, 400 pages and then cut it back to 325. I tend to, um, you know, write pretty clearly what I need for each chapter and know where I'm headed. Um, so that could be really interesting. I, I would never say no. You know, in terms of writing a real nonfiction book with fit notes, no way. That That is just terrifying. I have friends who write nonfiction and boy, the work involved in, you know, getting everything right, at least with fiction, you can, you know, fudge it if you have to, as long as you explain it in the author's note, why you change something, you can change something. Yeah. And the sheer amount of documentation you have to do in nonfiction feels daunting to me. But as a, as a, a novelist, you don't, at the end, in the author's note, you can say, here are some places you can learn more, but you don't have to list 500 oh. sources. Right, right. I can't imagine. Oh. Um, so as well, um, somebody, okay, so this is specifically about the Lions of Fifth Avenue. This person's book club is reading that right now. So that's kind of fun. Um, is there anything that you'd like to share about that just for this person's to share with their book club, um, either like a little research gem or some behind the scenes information? You shared a little bit about getting to write it at the library. Um, was there anything else that stood out to you in the process of researching that one? Yeah, there were two things. One is that, you know, I was I was looking at the library and thinking, well, I'm not sure if there's really a book here because it's, you know, what I'm not sure what I'm going to do with it. And then I learned, I found this article in the New York Times in my research um, from 1940. And it was all about the retirement of the library superintendent. Mm -hmm. And it mentioned that he'd lived with his wife and his three kids in a seven room apartment deep inside the library for 30 years. He was there when it opened and um, he was just retiring in the forties and his his daughter was born in the library. The kids used to raise pigeons on the roof um, and, and they used to play baseball in the reading room using books as bases until they got in trouble. It was the most amazing, amazing book. And in fact, there's a, a kid's book called The Story Collector that's about the family um, that I highly recommend. Um, that that um, I'm, The author's name is blanking, but it's a, The Story Collector, just a wonderful book about a family in the library from the, from the little girl's point of view. And so I thought, you know, that's a great in a family living in the library. I'm completely in. And then the theft that occurs in that book, there's a rare book theft. And that's based on a theft that happened at Columbia University's Butler Library in 1993, where a thief stole $1.8 million of rare books over the course of three months. And no one could figure out how he was getting in and out. And I was lucky enough to, um, to interview the librarian who, who was the head librarian at that time and what it was like when he was finally captured and what she learned. And, and, and so that's very much in that story as well. So it's, it's two very real things in a fictional story. I love that. And I am jotting down that title because I have a little girl who loves books and I'm sure she would enjoy that story. Um, yeah. Thanks for details on that one as well. Um, this, this one is um, kind of more on a uh, marketing side of things, but this person found you through the Good Morning America book club pick that I mentioned in your intro. And they said, what does that feel like from your perspective? Like what, did, how did they let you know? How did you feel about it? Uh, so tell us about that. That's kind of fun. Yeah. I mean, it was amazing. Um, I got an email from my, it, we were all locked down. And so I was working at, I have a house just North of the city. So I was working there and I got an email and my um, editor, you know, said, guess what? We've done it. We've, we were, we're a pick um, and you cannot tell anyone. Um, and so I, I told my boyfriend, cause he was there at the time. So he heard me yell. Um, but we, it was so hard because you, you cannot tell a soul. Like I didn't even tell my mother cause I didn't want her to tell her book club or anything because they can rescind it. Like if, if it gets out before it's time they can pull it back. And I was just so terrified and um, and it was wonderful. They were so generous and they really helped me reach a huge audience that otherwise you cannot reach. It was it was remarkable what it did for for the readership. 
And so I will be always in debt. And, and we, we had to do our interview through zoom because it was during lockdown, but still they were so warm and generous and it was just, just a, such a thrill. Something good happened in 2020, guys. That is in itself a heartwarming thing. <laughs> yes. Um, this person asked, have you ever thought about writing in another genre or maybe doing a collaboration at some point in the future? So, Yeah, you know, I have done, um, I with a, another writer friend named MJ Rose mm. back in, oh gosh, 2016? No, 2020, like 2019. We were together, we were stuck at an airport and we came up with this idea of doing a, a, a book of short stories, all from the point of view of a suffragette parade in New York City in 1915. And we reached out to a bunch of authors. I think there were 12. Kristen Hanna wrote the intro. We had Chris Bojalian, Jamie Ford, Christina Baker Klein, um, Paula McLean. It was just this incredible list of authors. And we all wrote a short story around that parade and around that day. And MJ and I were kind of the, we were called the editors, but we were more the wranglers of putting that together. And it's called Stories from Suffragette City. And it was really fun to, to watch these other authors come up with their ideas and, you know, to collaborate and work together and, and to create it. So that was fun. I would definitely do, do something like that again. Um, and yeah, as, in terms of other genres, I just love historical fiction so much. I love the research. I love creating the scaffolding of true, of truth and of facts and people and events, and then layering a fictional story on top of that. You know, for me, that's, that's really fun. So, um, you know, I got to do a little bit of thriller with the spectacular. So, so we can say I, I tried a little thriller there and that was great too. Yeah. And I mean, short story is also its entirely own thing. So good for you. That sounds like quite a project and a really fun one to check out if you guys haven't seen that one yet. Um, there are two questions that are, are similar in that they're asking for recommendations of other books. One person was saying, have you read anything that you are enjoying now or recently? And then somebody else said, are there any other rec reads that you would recommend for somebody who loves historical fiction that would be somewhat similar to your books. So maybe not something you've read recently, but something that you would enjoy and recommend to other readers. Yeah, yeah, sure. I mean, I loved um, Geraldine Brooks is one of my favorite authors and her, her book Horse, as well as People of the Book. I mean, all of her books are great. Um, and then in terms of fun historical fiction, there's a book called um, A Most Agreeable Murder by Rebecca Seals. I just and, read it. Oh, isn't it great? It was charming. It's so charming. It's this kind of funny take on Agatha Christie and, and Jane Austen. If they merged and had a baby, this would be the book. And it's so funny. It just, oh, it's just wonderful about Regency romance and 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 you will laugh the entire way. And then in other, other books, um, I just finished um, Jean Kwok's The Leftover Woman, which is a really, really great read. Um, a little more of a thriller, but a literary thriller. It's beautifully written. And then, of course, um, Ann Patchett, Tom Lake, is a beautiful book that I just finished and, and couldn't put down. She's she's truly a master at what she does. That's on my book club's list to read next year. So I'm glad to have something to look forward to. Um, those are all great recommendations. So thank you for that. Um, then another question that's kind of more on the the writing process sort of thing of you say you love the editing side of your process. Uh, do you feel like you, when you do your writing, you have an outline of everything ahead of time and the editing is more just uh, making sure that everything flows together well, or do you really have to dig in and rearrange things and fix things up as you go? Because the stories are complicated, there is often rearranging. Um, and so I do do an outline. I figure out who the characters are. I figure out what they want. I figure out their journey, each separate timeline's journey. I map it out. I braid it together. And then I have a synopsis that I work off of as I, I know what each chapter needs to do. But then once you've done that, that really feels like it's only the beginning because then you understand the whole story. And that's where sometimes you have to pull it apart and put something over here and switch something there. And with dual timeline, of course, that can screw everything up. Um, and so the editing can be pretty extensive and just deepening characters and, and making sure everything is consistent. So yeah, it, it can be, it, it's not just about kind of smoothing out the wrinkles. It Sometimes it's about a full facelift. <laughs> good. I always tell readers, it's a good thing you see the books 
at their, like you said, your 10th or 11th draft um, and not the first draft or you wouldn't be reading anything else that we'd written. Um, this question is kind of more, I don't know about you, but I've often had readers send me messages saying, um, what happens to these characters after the book ends? So in your mind, do you imagine things that happen to the characters after the stop of the story? Or for you, is it up to the readers and you, you've you never really thought that through in a firm way? You know, I, I haven't. I kind of have an inkling of where they'll end up um, and what they'll do. You know, some of the timelines end happily ever after. Some of them don't because that's the way it was for a woman, you know, in the past, sometimes things just did not work out. And, and so, you know, I, I want to be true to the time period and true to the women's experiences back then. Um, and so sometimes that's hard to imagine what their, what their ending was, but um, yeah, you know, I think, I think I leave each one, especially if it's a happy ending in a way that you can see they'll go off into the sunset and they've learned something important about themselves that will make their life easier going forward. I think that's what each book achieves. Yeah, I think that was that's definitely the case with Marianne and I felt very satisfied um, with where that story ended for her. Um, do you have anything you wanna share about projects that might be coming in the future? Any little hints of what you're researching right now? Yeah, sure. Um, so my next book is set at the Met Museum, which is- <gasps> Very fun. Yes. It's a lot of fun. It involved a trip to Egypt back in April, oh. which was incredible. And um, yeah, it's set in partly in the 1930s, partly in 1978. Mm -hmm. And so it does go back in time a little bit. And there's um, really two main characters. One is a, an associate curator in the Met in the Egyptian art collection. And then the other is an assistant to the Met Gala, which is the party of the year. At that point, Deanna Vreeland was the in charge of it. Uh, she was the Anna Wintour of her day. And so it's a bit of glamour and a bit of mummy. And um, we'll see where it works out. There's a curse. There's, you know, it's all got all that good stuff. It's really fun. I'm here for the glamour and I'm especially here for the mummies. I love a good museum. So what a delight. I was kind of hoping that sometime okay. you'd get to one of the museums. So yay, the Met. All right. Be looking for that, everyone, because that's going to be coming out in January next year. 25. So wonderful. Oh almost uh, just over a year. Yeah. And I love a lot of readers were curious about the process and how long it takes. So it was, it was fun to see that aspect of publishing come through. Um, and all right. Great questions. These are fantastic. Really lovely. Yes. All right. So I'm being told we have time for one more question. So I think I will ask, um, do you, personally like have a book club that you interact with or do you have a circle of readers that you like to recommend books to in your in your real life um, not even just social media wise um you know I'm not in a book club just because I don't have the time I'm usually off talking about my book um, you know there's just I, I can't quite make that time right now which is wonderful to be able to travel and and you know talk about this book um but yeah you know it's not in as much a group of readers, but I'm I'm on a text chain with a group of other authors and we're all kind of in our forties and fifties and we all did other things before we were writers. And so we just have a lot in common and we have a kind of funny point of view on the whole publishing world and how crazy it is. And so if I know if, you know, there's a couple of, of the writers there that if they recommend a book, I know I will love it. And so that's like Tom Patchett, you know, was one of the mentions on the text chain. So that's how we go back and forth and share something that we're really, really excited about. Um, and it's really just a, a great community to have stumbled into um, at this point. It's really, really wonderful. I'm, I adore them. That's great. And that is absolutely a group of reader friends that you are sharing books with because writers are, first of all, readers. And I love that you have that community and the ability to discuss books with other people is a lot of fun. Um, and with that, looking at the time, I realized that I have to wrap things up and I know we could all spend all night talking about all things book and history, but I just want to really thank you, Fiona, for making time to share with all of us tonight. Oh, this was a blast. Thank you so much. And thank you for the wonderful questions and, and the interaction. I know we didn't quite get to them all, but this is just, just a real joy to, to be able to talk books. It's it, I'm in heaven. Yes. Honestly, this group of readers, everyone did such a great job making this a fun conversation. Thank you so much. Have a good night.
That wraps up our Dakota County Library event with Fiona Davis. Make sure to catch our next Club Book podcast with Elizabeth Acevedo. Elizabeth Acevedo is a Dominican-American author and spoken word artist. She is best known for her 2018 young adult novel in verse, The Poet X, which won the National Book Award and Carnegie Medal. Family Lore, her first novel for adults, hit shelves in August. Visit us online at clubbook.org for details on past and present seasons, sign up for our e-newsletter, check out our calendar, and so much more. Stay up to date with all of our events at our Clubbook Facebook page. If you're on Twitter, find us using the handle clubbookmn. And if you enjoy these free Clubbook events and podcasts, remember to share them with your friends. They just may too. Thanks again to all those who make Clubbook possible, including Melsa, Library Strategies, and Minnesota's Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. Our sponsors include MinPost and Red Balloon Bookshop, where you can purchase all the books featured in Clubbook. Finally, a very special thank you to all the libraries hosting events this season. That's it for Clubbook, the coolest club in town. We'll see you at the library.